0: Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the Double-Edged Devil Bill. This week, January unleashes the gray, and movie 43 upon us. Week, I am Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick number between one and ten in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and uh, I'm about to go once more into the fray.
1: I'm Adam Thomas, and hold on. I have. <laughs> balls! On my chin!
0: Oh, 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 oh my god! Oh, oh, Adam, you—you oh, you caught me so off guard with that. Oh, we're making a whole movie, baby. Adam, you can't spring things up like him.
1: How, how, how are we gonna keep
0: going after that?
1: It's yeah. So funny. You know, I turned down the Tonight Show.
0: Uh, with so. you were out of respect to Jay Leno, not Conan O'Brien, but Jay Leno specifically. Yeah, it's specifically. Oh, well, welcome everyone to uh, the double Edge Devil Bill, where uh, every week Adam and I cover a double feature based around a topic uh, that we decide on. And, uh, you know, we're releasing this episode uh, in, you know, about mid or so January. Uh, and January traditionally is sort of like a dump month in, well, in regular release schedule times. Which, then again, it's, it's also interesting given we're recording such long after Scream... Which is like sort of like a bigger blockbuster than you would usually get. I think that dump month mentality has kind of evolved a bit over the last couple of years, hasn't it, Adam?
1: I don't know that they purposely release stinkers anymore in January, but I think there's a lot more niche stuff, or maybe you know genre-specific things, like especially horror and things like that, or just things that maybe the studio doesn't have a lot of faith in. You don't really see a lot of the oh, we know this is terrible, but we gotta release it anyways. You don't really get yeah. that much more because of, like, the streaming services and direct-to-physical media and things like that. There's other avenues instead of putting it in the theaters.
0: Yeah, I think they kind of realized after a certain point that you can still release a blockbuster at any certain point. haven't uh-huh. do very well. Obviously, right now we're still in the middle of a pandemic and whatnot, so that's still a bit iffy depending on the release. But... Um, at, At the same time, I think that's what's interesting is that, especially with the two movies we're talking about now, we're firmly in that kind of like January dump month kind of thing. Uh, with that one that was still more of the mentality. But we are covering, I think, one movie that sort of feels like that niche thing that you're talking about. Feels like one that um, kind of fits into a certain category, but also doesn't. It's weird. but We'll talk about that for sure. And we might as well just uh, go ahead and get into it. Uh, We have two movies that we're talking about today that were released in January. Uh, First, we have uh, My Good Pick, which was The Grey. And then we have Your Bad Pick, Adam, which is movie... Forty-three. Uh, one of those might be the one that was dumped in January because uh, it seemed pretty fucking bad. No one wanted to touch it.
1: I know, I don't get it. I really like the Grey.
0: Yeah, it's such a bummer. But yeah, why don't we go ahead and get into our uh, first feature here then, the Grey. A job at the end of the world.
1: Food. If we don't move and work now, we're all feasted. We figure out what way is south and we start walking. This will be one of those wild stories you tell at a (laughs) party. Get up, get up. Don't move. Stay right back at him.
0: So The Grey came out January 27th, 2012, uh, from director-writer Joe Carnahan, who we've covered uh, The A-Team previously on this show, Um, and is an interesting filmmaker in terms of, like, he's gotten to make a few movies, but he's also kind of been known as a guy who's attached to movies for a pretty long while, like Blockbusters especially. He gets attached and then he goes through a long, hellish development process, and then there's huge creative differences and he kind of splits off. Like, that happened with Mission Impossible 3 and Bad Boys for Life. He's done a couple of those situations there.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And the thing is, I think he's a very capable director, especially an action director. What do you think it is? Why do you think Joe Carnahan's really never, like really majorly hit it.
0: Well, I mean, it it probably has a lot to do with, I don't think his style of action necessarily always works for, like, the studio system, when you think about it. Uh, Because with, like, say, the, you know, the Grey, even, is, like, a pretty good example, where this was around the time that um, Liam Neeson, the star of this feature, um, was in his old man action movie craze, at least the uh, earlier parts of it. Because around 2009, Taken came out. After he had been, you know, such a big uh, celebrated actor, he does Taken, and that becomes, like, a massive hit and starts him doing, like, oh, no, I gotta do, like, one of these a year, basically. Um, And, you know, because you got your, like, your unknowns, your nonstops, your the commuters, stuff like that. And this one was definitely sold as that kind of movie, but it really isn't one of those movies at all. I mean, in no way.
1: Yeah, Liam Neeson has a gun in it. But, you know, other than that, it's kind of just a a tale about how far man is willing to go and the savagery of man compared to that of animals and just hopelessness and depression. And it's a really sort of... How do I put this? Depressing. (laughs) It's very depressing. But it's really sort of a very introspective film. It's not just Liam Neeson beating up, you know, Eastern European guys. It's, it's just a really
0: fucking, just kind of a beautiful movie. It's weird. Cause I remember around the time this movie came out, this trailer came out and everyone was like, Oh my God, Liam Neeson's going to fight some wolves. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Like the, the, the sort of ending bit of this movie is in the trailer that involves more like little, um, airplane, uh, bar, whiskey glasses that he just, like, breaks on his knuckles and he's like, come on, motherfucker, come on. Try to attack me. And in the movie, that's, like, right before it sort of, like, cuts to credits. And I remember that being, like, the main conversation of this movie with people who had seen it. Just like, oh, man, why didn't he fight the wolves? That's bullshit. The trailer told me this. This was a movie that really, really firmly established something that I sort of knew was always true, but really firmly... Just cemented it for me, which is just like trailers fucking lie, and people should probably not judge a movie just based on the trailer. Like it's fun to watch a trailer and be like kind of excited about a movie, but whenever I've watched a trailer, especially ever since this movie came out like a decade ago, I've really put it firmly like there's probably going to be a bunch of shit that is like weirdly edited in here that isn't quite the same as in the movie, or even shit that isn't in the movie that's in this trailer. So I'm not going to put the expectation that the movie must exactly fit this trailer because I think that's really unfair to the movie, especially in this case.
1: Oh, I completely agree. And that shit happens more often than not, where there'll be a certain shot or something in the trailer or sometimes even whole subplots or lines of dialogue that aren't in the film. And yeah, I remember when this came out, too. That's exactly what it was. That's what everybody was saying. Uh, and some people even thought it would be like silly. Like, oh, my God, Liam Neeson. Now he's fighting the wolves. You know he's got no more like Frenchmen to fight. Like what the fuck is this? And uh, I I gotta be honest, I thought that too. I'm like, what Liam Neeson versus wolves with mini bar bottles? This looks ridiculous. So I did not see this when it first came out. I, I was like, probably already good with old man Neeson action movies. So on a lark, I think uh, like a buddy of mine or my brother rented it. And I was kind of disappointed even. I'm like, ah, oh, man, I don't really want to fucking watch this. And within the first 10 minutes, you're like, oh, this is something completely different. Like It, it does not take long uh, for you to realize this is not at all what you think it is. The trailer did this movie dirty. But then, you know, there's other people like who hate this movie because it's not Liam Neeson versus Wolves. And I just, ask, you know, the age-old question, is, is that... Really what you want? You, do, do you really want to see Liam Neeson punching wolves for an hour and a half, two hours? That, there's nothing to that. Uh, it, it's just movie has a lot more meaning and a lot of more depth to it than I think people were prepared for. And, and I think that might be even one of the reasons why it's not really still that well celebrated or even talked about of a movie.
0: Yeah, especially because since this point, Neeson has gone just full bore into that, like, the top action movie craze and other well, things. Yeah, I was gonna say. I'm going chronologically, because <laughs> it yeah. was... All the action, slew of action movies came out, then the racism. press tour for Cold Pursuit happened <laughs> <laughs> with the right. racism. Yes, I, I agree. The the really bizarre racism. Just like, Liam, you could have... To quote Shaquille Lambert, friend of the show, you could have just gone to your grave never telling anybody that. Or just really used your vocabulary different like, it was, like his explanation of
1: what he meant like yeah nah Liam
0: nah right and then also nah. other shit like the especially as of recent I saw this the the whole Liam Neeson pissing his pants photos going around oh You're my like, god I didn't know that yeah our, our guest Aaron Brady from last week mentioned this That like there are all these photos where there's just a clear puddle of urine around Liam Neeson's like crotch area and oh, just no one's commenting on it. It's just a weird thing. Just like, does he have a medical condition? Is he too severe a drunk? I don't know what's going on here. I'm not going to speculate necessarily. Nah. But
1: he's Irish. He's drunk. He's drunk.
0: Are you saying that Irish people drink a lot, him? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, good. I'm just assuming that you have a red nose because you have a cold of some sort. That's exactly what that is.
1: Yeah, that's exactly, exactly <laughs> it. Exactly. I love you, Uh, Thomas. (laughs) Oh, I love you too,
0: buddy. It's fine. Uh, But with all that baggage that's included, it is amazing going back to like movies like this, or obviously some of his earlier movies, or whatever, and just remembering like, man, this giant Irish man is such a good fucking actor (laughs) when he wants to be. And goddamn, like this movie where if you're if you're unaware of like the premise of this movie, basically, um, it takes place in like what Canada, right? Is where they are. Or in Alaska. They're in Alaska.
1: Yeah, I think they filmed in Canada, but it's supposed right. to be, like, Alaska.
0: Yeah, so the, the, it takes place in Alaska, where there's, like, a bunch of guys that are on this uh, Anchorage, like, drill. While Neeson plays a guy who basically shoots any wolves that might come on and attack workers. That's his whole job, is he tracks these wolves. And he's also suffering through some loss because his wife had passed away, which, man... That scene where he's, like, writing the letter to his wife, basically, as like a sort of uh, psychological exercise, is so beautiful, especially in context of, like, this was only a couple of years after Natasha Richardson, his wife, had the terrible accident and died. And you you really feel that palpable emotion throughout this whole oh, movie. Oh,
1: 100%, dude. And then this the score
0: mm-hmm. they put behind it.
1: Yeah. That whole moment. And then ultimately, but go ahead, continue, continue.
0: Well, and while um, they've, they've been working at this job, uh, they uh, have to leave after a certain point, so everybody gets in a plane, and that plane gets a lot of turbulence and crashes, leaving uh, a few survivors, including Neeson and a handful of other men, uh, like Jeremy Mulroney and Frank Grillo, uh, Joe Anderson, Dallas Roberts, a few people like that, uh, who survive. And it's basically a survival story as they try and walk around in the middle of this horrible frozen tundra, while there are a bunch of wolves, because they have landed basically around a, a wolf den, according to Neeson. And it's about sort of these men trying to survive, and kind of putting heads with each other, and growing to have some respect for each other, while also just trying to get away from these wolves at the same time. Yeah. And, uh, hey, it's an incredible,
1: incredibly harrowing plane crash. Like, it's, yes. it's pretty phenomenal. But, yeah, like you said, it's just these, like, I think there's, what, seven of them all together? Seven guys?
0: Right. There, uh, there are eight who survive initially the crash for a bit. Uh, one of them does not make it very long. Um, shout yeah, out right to right. our buddy James Dale, who that scene is probably uh, the most okay. intense, horrific thing that at the same time I totally get it from like a Neeson, where it's just like he sees that like he, James Badshale's not gonna make it and usually in movies like this it would be a thing like, You're gonna make it, buddy. It's fine. It's fine. Just look over there. Look at the rabbits or whatever. And Neeson's just like, You're going to die. That's what's going to happen. But don't worry, it'll go over you, it'll wash over you like a calm. And James Badshale's initially just like, oh my god, I can't believe it. And as he's dying, he's just like, Who do you love? It's just like my little girl, she's six. She's just like, then let her take you. It's just like, oh my god.
1: Oh, it's
0: so fucked up! <laughs> <laughs> it's so
1: fucked up, dude. You know, at least in my opinion, as you know, full transparency. I've, I've suffered from bouts of depression my whole life. The way Liam Neeson portrays this man who's is, who's is ultimately just horribly depressed. I mean, to the point where he's suicidal. You know, we we kind of glossed over that, but mm-hmm. after he writes the letter and stuff, he he attempts to kill himself. Um, but just the depiction of that and that how you know he he even the line where it's like, I don't know, you know, why I've done half the things I've done and, you know, all these things, you know, I stopped doing good in this world and, and all, it's just, it's constant. Like he's, he's, he can't realize what he's doing. Like he's keeping these guys going and he's keeping them alive and, and trying to help them survive and everything, but he's just constantly beating himself down. Um, but like even that, that moment with James Badgedale, I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty hardcore and it's straight to the point, but he knew exactly what to give that guy in that time. And yet he can't find that for himself. And it's really kind of sad, you know, for the most part. And, you know, it's like the, you know, the classic thing I, I, I want to say that it repeats like three or four times where he can can hear his wife saying, you know, don't be afraid and things like that. And, you know, at first I thought it was, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, to die or don't be afraid of, you know, what's happening or whatever. But, You know, you almost come away thinking like maybe it's like just don't be afraid of, you know, needing to keep going or feeling hopelessness or feeling like you can't go on. Don't be afraid of that because it's just that's natural and that's what you're going to feel. and That's what people feel. And it's just I just think it's such a beautiful, cathartic moment for not only in that moment with James Badgetale, but for the Liam Neeson character as a whole. I mean, throughout the whole movie. I just, I absolutely identify with it in that way. Um, Obviously, that is the only way. I'm not six foot five. Apparently, hanging brain like crazy and and all this
0: stuff, but. And you don't have hands that could crush a man. Like just one hand. Yeah, probably not. Any time in this movie where you see his hands, any of this movie is just like, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah. You just have to like flick me and then I'll like have a brain hemorrhage or something.
1: It's just such a great great performance from lee Neeson. i i argue i this is a my favorite of sort of the old man Neeson films but it's also in my top three Neeson performances of all time as well i just think it's fucking great and i mean but then again yeah the the surrounding cast around him like especially frank grillo like i love grillo i'm a frank grillo fan but i i just love diaz in this movie he's such a prick But you also see where he's coming from, where he's like, why the fuck are we saving it? Why don't we just fucking get drunk and all this stuff? And then ultimately when he's like, I'm done, I'm fucking done. Like, you get it. Like, yeah, I'd be done too. It's just this movie is full of just amazing performances. And like I said, the score behind the whole movie is, is wonderful.
0: Yeah, uh, shout out to uh, Mark Straitenfeld uh, did the score I agree it's it's very minimalistic but it like really works throughout the whole movie but I think even with what you were talking about earlier about like Neeson having to sort of face those things with like his wife the flashbacks and the the sort of dream sequences which shout out I love every time he's like in that bed with her and then he's literally pulled out of it visually are, like, my favorite shots of the movie, particularly the one where, like, they're underneath the covers and then he, like, gets pulled and then he's, like, in the middle of the snow and almost looks like one shot is, like, such a stellar, like, example literally being pulled out of a dream like that. But, like, that sort of lesson is something Neeson isn't the only one who has to deal with that. It's, like, all these men have to kind of deal with that. It's really a study about how various different... Man, not just, like, survive. It's not like a manliness contest. It's just more of, like, this this thing where, like, different types of people in the middle of the situation would have varying reactions to it. Like, some people try and keep an overt optimism, like I would argue Dermot Mulroney's character is trying to do, versus Frank Grillo, who's extremely pessimistic. And Liam Neeson, who's, like, kind of trying to hold it together, but isn't, like, sort of off in a different land. Um, And, you know, even people who, like, put off a shield to implicate, like, oh, I'm, like, a cool, fun-loving dude like Joe Anderson. Uh, The moment he's stuck in the elements, he's just, like, the first one to get picked off. Dallas Roberts, I love how compassionate he is. He's the guy who does, like, the prayer and everything before they leave the plane. Like, I love that he has this, like, real empathetic side. And the movie presents, like, all these men spoilers for this 10-year-old movie. Pretty much all of them die over the course of this movie but it doesn't present any of them as weaker than the other necessarily as much as like no people deal with this in varying different ways because people are all fucking different especially all these dudes who spend their time as like pipe workers are just like yeah we're strong manly men Uh, when you're out there in the elements uh, no you're not all strong manly men you are you know human beings that can cower Mm -hmm. And have worry, and some people might survive for a bit but still have that fear inside them. Like, Neeson has that great bit with Frank Grillo where they're talking to each other, it's just like, I'm scared. You're not scared, then you're a fucking fool and a liar. And it's just like, yeah, dude, anyone would naturally be scared. (laughs) And you're in the fucking hell of the woods, and those wolves look terrifying. (laughs) Yeah fuck
1: those things <laughs> like they're terrible but yeah no yeah you made a really good point yeah like all these guys are tough oil workers they even you know show the part where grillos brawling in their little bar that they have right. set up yes. for them and all this stuff and yeah you know they're, they're totally like yeah we're guards we're guards <laughs> like they're just but yeah you get them out in the elements man and they all crumble in a different way anderson's basically useless like i love him in this movie i think he's great at it but yeah you know he's on the plane and he's cutting the the jokes like we would crash and all this stuff and then it actually happens and he's just a i don't want to say a baby but he's like a
0: frightened child he's catatonic almost to a certain degree after a certain point yeah
1: yeah you know it's so funny you brought up the guy the uh i can't remember the actor's name but the one who does the prayer
0: Dallas Roberts, yeah.
1: Dallas Roberts. Other than Neeson, he's probably my favorite in the
0: movie. In any lesser movie where this would be like the more traditional Liam Neeson movie, that guy would be, you know, so much more to the side. But he is treated as just like a genuine person. He's just like, look, man, I'm, I'm trying to help you. Like, particularly when uh, Nonzo Anosi. Uh, when he goes through his whole, like, almost brain hemorrhage thing, basically, and he tries to, like, call, Dallas Roberts tries to calm him down, but just like, no, it's fine, to worry. And, he, you know, he, the guy's bringing up, like, his sister who died when they were kids and shit like that, and that he knows his past about this, too. You can tell, like, he's who's extremely empathetic, and yeah, something that feels like it's in short supply.
1: Oh, no, absolutely. By the way, you could just refer to the other guy as, you know, Artemis Fowles Butler. That's fine.
0: Well, that's, that's of course, that's where knows everyone about. knows him. Yeah, right. That's yes, right. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah just, you, just, you all just, saw Disney Plus' major, major hit, um, yeah, Artemis yeah, yeah. Fowl. And really, right. uh, the Artemis Fowl, The Book of Gad, um, and all mm-hmm. those other spells. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, <laughs> right. Judy Dutch only wants to... Be that character from now on. It's really bizarre. Um, it goes to show, like, there's an old quote, and I'm sorry, I'm paraphrasing the quote, but I instantly thought of it, you know, while watching this movie, and I think I even saw it referred to before when someone else is talking about this movie. But there's such a great thing, especially with the Liam Neeson character and the sort of the pathos he become that he goes through with, you know, the wanting to die and stuff. It's almost like the quote is, you know, if there's meaning in life, then there absolutely must be meaning in suffering. He almost finds his meaning through this through the fighting through the you know th- that the fight is maybe what is worth fighting for the actual fight to survive and the fight to live and the fight to get through this and everything like that's what he's trying to live for at this point like yeah it's it's not necessarily a long-term thing but just to find these little battles and you know be a meta, you know sort of interior or exterior battles but just that this guy who you follow in the beginning who's so broken and alone and sad and depressed. And just that he has the most strength really out of all of these guys because it's not the fact that he has nothing to live for or he's lost the will to live. It's that he hasn't found it yet. He hasn't been able to rediscover what to live for. And you almost get it through this movie. Now, to, to interpret the ending how you want, but it's almost like you follow his journey of finding the will to live again. And it's just, it's really fascinating stuff.
0: Yeah. And all these people kind of have to have that since they're stuck in a desperate situation. All of them have to kind of try and find some sort of will and find like a connection with each other, but it's not in a way where it's like, Oh, we're like the best of friends now all of a sudden. It's just like, no, we're just all mutually in terror about this situation. Like the whole thing where, um, the wolf attacks Frank Grillo initially, um, after he does this whole puffed out, just like, whatever, man, I'm tough. Oh God, I'm being attacked by a wolf. And he just starts stabbing that wolf so hard, like to the point where long past that wolf is dead. And they'll have like a weird connection at that point, And they start eating the wolf just to survive and there's a bit of, like, a fun that's there, but then Frank Grillo takes it way too far when the wolves are around and just, like, cuts off the wolf's head and shit like that. You can tell it's just like, oh, we can find moments of connection, but also, oh, yeah, we're very different people, and in the case of Frank Grillo, he's kind of a sick fuck. (laughs) He's kind of a (laughs) disturbed individual who they're just like, well, I mean, we want to help him survive, but also, if we do survive, man, I don't know if we're going to talk to you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he's not going to be, like... If they survive, like, the reunion picnics, they're they're not going to invite the yes. Yeah, uh, just just tell them it's canceled. You know, that type of shit. Who sent him the (laughs) evites? Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I made us all elves for Christmas on (laughs) e-cards. Hilarious. (laughs) It's called Jib Jab. My daughter introduced it to me. (laughs) It's a technological marvel. (laughs) <laughs> um, but, um, <laughs> I mean, nobody wants to quit. Nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to give up, but obviously through either wolf's attacks or like I said, with Frank Grillo, where he's like, I'm fucking done, dude. Like he, he, you get it when every, you know, in every way, even like I said, with his character, there's such, you know, especially the Grillo, Cause I, would argue out of the supporting characters, he's probably the one you get the most character out of, mm-hmm. um. But and him and Neeson are such polar opposites where Neeson it like just keeps going and Grillo's like I'm done, but you totally get it on both sides like I totally understand I totally understand the the want like fuck this dude like there's no hope, I get right? It, but I also get the why not keep going? What else do we have?
0: It's not a movie that shames somebody for accepting death,
1: at right? All, exactly, but, yeah. exactly, and I think. You know that's one of the reasons I really appreciate it too, because that's handled really expertly. Like in in no way did I ever look at the DS character when when that when he ultimately decides that and be like, this guy's a fucking quitter. Like you're like, oh, nah, man. Like they just give him his moment. Like that, yeah, he's done, dude. And
0: I or even that him. Dallas Roberts has that moment where he does try and say like, oh, you're gonna quit. You're gonna be a quitter. Yeah, show sure that even he, the empathetic guy can have a point where he's just like, oh, he's totally just against this because it's hurting his ability to survive at the same time. There's so many complex emotions going on, even though it's like a bunch of dudes out there in the woods trying to survive wolves. He's like, no, they're complex fucking individuals.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a good point about the Dallas uh, Roberts character because he is such an empathetic character. He feels like if he can't almost talk Grillo to keep going, then, you know, he's lost, too. Like if he can't keep him going, then you know that that was kind of his main survival tactic, like just being there, trying to keep everyone else going through empathy or whatever. And if and if he fails this guy, then maybe he fails. He's gonna fail altogether.
0: Or even someone we haven't even discussed that much, like Dermot Maroney. Um, yeah. who I think is gracious. Like he's definitely the one who seems like he's more of like a tech guy almost. He doesn't even go out onto like the field that much when they're so he's totally just a lot more still trying to be like you know hopeful and optimistic about it but in a way that almost feels like naive in a way that still was like really endearing like his whole talk mm-hmm. about his daughter which is really endearing about it. she's like oh she like uh, her hair's so long and she like brushes oh, yeah. my face and then later on his death scene is so is pretty great even with the dodgy sort of cg canyon That is underneath him. The actual fall and then the vision that he sees, which is immediately cut to the wolves attacking him, is, like, so unnerving. It's so brutal, the way that happens. Just even, like, the way they utilize these wolves is pretty astonishing, where, like, there's some practical, like, wolf effects, particularly in the close-ups when they're fighting, Or you see, like, the the wolves kind of coming from the shadows, just their eyes, stuff like that. I would say 90% of the wolf effects work really well. The only times it doesn't is when, like, one wolf is very clearly visible and you can see it's not making any indentation because it's probably a CG wolf, like, in the snow and shit like that. There's a few shots like that, but they're few and far between.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And I know exactly which one
0: you're talking about, too. It feels like there's no weight to it at all. Yeah.
1: But yeah, no, I think it's incredibly effective.
0: The, the wolves in
1: this, I, I I think it was handled really, really well. Because it could have just been really bad CGI that instantly dates the movie. And it really doesn't. It really doesn't. It holds up extremely well uh, because of the use of practical effects. And, and I think you're probably dead on there 90%. To go back to the uh, Mulroney part, you know, it, that scene gets me every time, though. The, the campfire scene where they're sitting around talking about what they want to live for, what to live for. You know, and of course, you got Grillo. be like, I don't want a 250-pound hooker to be the last girl I laid or whatever everyone "Ah." but yeah then it gets to him and he's like i just want to be able to feel my kid's hair again and you're like "Go, jesus christ it instantly hits me every time it almost like it floors me and then you know and again you know not to be like well because you know i can relate to it on this many levels but yeah i can uh you know i'm a father of a six-year-old little girl like if I was caught in a you know do or die survival situation, that would be my only thought too, is getting back to her. And I just can't imagine even oh feel good movie of the year.
0: <laughs> um, and mainly we haven't talked much about Nanzo Anosy, who is a great actor. Um, oh yeah, he's I great. think he get he gets short shifted quite frankly in this movie a lot more than the other guys, which is unfortunate, especially given he's like the one. Like, black guy in the group as well. That, like, because aside from, like, that the whole thing that's kind of imparted to us by the Dallas Roberts character about his, like, sister, um, he's kind of just, like, there in the background, and then he ends up getting the weird, like, hypothermia thing or whatever that makes him kind of, like, start seeing hallucinations and stuff like that. He can't handle the altitude. There's not a lot of character there for him, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. He, his character becomes more of a hindrance than a full on character at, at one point. Like, It's almost like, oh God, this guy, like, you know, like you said, his dementia or whatever due to the hypothermia and the hallucination stuff, it almost just becomes something that the other six have to deal with.
0: Which wouldn't be a problem if he was more of a character before that. Yeah,
1: right. Exactly. Exactly. I I completely agree Uh, to the point to where that's probably, I would say my one, not necessarily, it's not like a huge problem for me uh, because it is a pretty big ensemble cast and it is a, you know, it is only two hours long. It's not a huge movie. Yeah, I, that's my one problem. I wish they would have given him more to do, because he's really good at it, and he is a really good actor, and it is unfortunate that it's the only real cast member of color that's sort of the throwaway character, but yeah, I, I do wish he would have got more to do.
0: Especially when, like, we talked about James Batchdale earlier, you get, like, maybe five minutes of screen time with that dude, but you know exactly who that dude is throughout yeah. all that, as opposed to, you get way more with Donzo. and she's just like, yeah, kind of there. You know, right? He's he's there yeah. with the guys, and then he dies. Although, to be fair, his scene where like they they wake up and there's like a giant snowstorm going on, and he's just like, "Wake up, wake up!" and he's like beating his chest, just like, "Ah, oh, dude, that's rough." You know, he wants to keep that dude alive, I'm just like, "No, he can't." It's fucked up. Are you trying to tell me <laughs> that this movie is
1: kind of fucked up a little bit?
0: <laughs> Look, I'm sorry, Adam. That buy- this ended up buy- being it. like this ended up being like a nonstop. Um, where, oh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, which, which for yeah. the record, I, I recently watched that and that's a fun movie. I would I say like, even one, with, within context of like, you know, the Liam Neeson action movies, like there are some that are just like very poorly made and poorly put out that don't have much of any like interest to them. And they're the ones that are like, they're silly, but at the same time, they're kind of fun. Despite that, I think it's particularly, uh, the ones that are made by, uh, Hwam Colette Sarah who did mm-hmm. Jungle Cruise recently, but also Orphan and The Shallows. He did, like, a bunch of those Neeson movies, like Nonstop and The Commuter. Those are very dumb, fun kind of movies. So it's just like, well, these are very entertaining, even if they're kind of throwaway and trashy. Uh, versus this is a movie that really shouldn't be lumped into that, despite having a similar release strategy and being a part of that same era with Neeson. Um, I think it's a real crit especially Carnahan, um, who... Oh, yeah is, like, a director who, usually, like, in the other action star sort of movies, he's done, like, we talked about 18. That's a very over-the-top, silly movie. And then you get to the gray, and the action is just a lot more visceral and brutal, particularly, like, any of the wolf attacks are just, like, unnerving. The way they're just like people get mauled horribly and you mostly see like more of the aftermath, if anything, than like the actual, during the attack, it's very quick cut in a way that works. It's like, oh my God, I'm being attacked by a fucking living animal. Um, And then you just see the after effects, even when Frank Grillo survives his attack, but later on when he's about to lay down the log, just the giant scarring on his back.
1: Oh, it's so fucking brutal.
0: It's so It really adds to, like, why he would feel that way. Um, While at the same time, like, there's that action stuff, but even that shot where Grillo's just like, look, I don't got much to live for. And I'm feeling like, I'm looking out there, and you have that shot of the mountains, just like, how much better can I get than that? That serene, quiet beauty just, like, really shows on the screen. It's such an expertly directed movie. It's probably my favorite of uh, at least, you know, sort of these earlier Carnahan movies. My favorite, admittingly, overall is the recent Cop Shop, which we will cover on the show at some point. If you have not seen Cop Shop, uh, see Cop Shop. It's great. (laughs) Cop Shop's phenomenal.
1: Absolutely phenomenal. But until until that movie, this was my favorite as well.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And what do you think maybe separates Carnahan as like an action or even just director in general from like a lot of the other people making these kind of like mid tier budget action movies like this.
1: Well, I think this, I think no perfect examples would be this movie and sort of cop shop when he's given something that's not, you know, real stereotypical or cliche like 18. Yeah, it was fun, but it's filled with a lot of cliche stuff and, and it's also based off an existing property and things like that. But when he's given things like this, that he maybe has, or like I said, Cop Shop, where he's maybe got a little bit more freedom to try different things. And cause I mean, it, honestly, if you watch this and Cop Shop, it, it, you'd be hard pressed to be like, Oh yeah, it's the same guy. And they're both really done well. I mean, really, really done well. But you know, if you're not in the know, I would never think that it's the same director at all. It's when he's given the chance to try new techniques or filming methods or things like that, that I think he's really got a unique eye, Um, especially when it comes to, you know, action based film. Um, Because that's another thing, too, that I I wanted to bring up real quick about this movie, the cinematography in this is gorgeous. But yeah, if if Carnahan, you know, maybe smaller projects that he's got a little bit more creative control over, I I think he could really do some really great work.
0: Though I think within at least a bit more recent, because I would argue after this, he made one of those movies, and it was uh, Stretch, which is one that just doesn't really come together at all.
1: Oh, with Patrick Wilson? Yeah. Oh, that's fucking garbage. I didn't realize
0: Right, that's... and that's a very small movie. I think it's it's the weird thing where, like, when, what works for me with um, Carnahan, I think in particular, is that at his best, he can be one of these guys who makes a movie that on its surface feels like it would be sort of like a, a genre, thrillery, like grungy piece of work that could be just, you know, kind of like toxic and shitty. As opposed to like when you actually watch the movie and you see the detail. Like in this movie, I love how many shots there are of just guys being like actually emotional and empathetic to each other. Like after they survive the crash, there's a point where two of the guys are like looking at each other in the plane and they like cry and like hug each other. And mm. it's a really great moment, just like oh no, these are like actual human beings that aren't just like uh, dudes surviving an action movie. Neeson doing this is kind of like our modern equivalent of like a Charles Bronson back in yeah. like the seventies and eighties, doing similar kind of things with his Death Wish run, uh, as opposed to here, unlike with Bronson, where he's just like I'm not really a human being; I just have this voice and I look like this. yeah. <laughs> as opposed I would to that, love like
1: to see that, movie. I want to see Charles Bronson versus wolves.
0: <laughs> okay, Fido. Bring it. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, somebody like him would never do a movie. Like, this. suppose Neeson has, like, enough of, like, the backlog of, like, actually being a well-trained actor who is willing to be empathetic and show emotion like that to where, like, this movie can have the facade of a big action movie, but have a whole recurring thing in his character where he thinks back to a poem that his father wrote a very simple poem that, like, keeps him living and keeps him going to the end. And, you know, that ending that everybody complained about with, like, oh, the wolves, like, the, him and the wolf charge at each other. I would argue if there was a wolf fight there, I think it would be a much lesser movie. Because it would see. be the movie just kind of succumbing to, like, oh, the sort of action climax. It wasn't really a thing in this movie. The It's like you mentioned, the sort of, like, the will to live and the will to fight to some degree, even though it's probably a losing battle, is much more of the point than, like, him actually fighting that wolf. And I know there's even, like, there's, there's the post credit scene where, like, you see them both are still breathing, but they're laying down, and there's a mm-hmm. sort of ambiguous tone of, like, oh, did they make it? Did they survive? And, like, my interpretation of that is basically just, like, I could maybe see, like, they both took each other out, essentially, like, the wolf and Neeson, probably, and they're on their last legs at that particular point.
1: Yeah, if there would have been the big, dumb wolf fight, Like, in some of the trailers, you know, obviously, the movie ends with Neeson, like, running towards the camera, like, real close up. But in the early trailers, you actually see him running, and he's covered in blood and all this stuff. I'm so glad we didn't get that. I am so glad we didn't get that. It would have cheapened everything that came before it,
0: I think. Yes. Um, Well, we have a very cheap movie to get to in a moment. So, Adam, let's do some quick final thoughts on The Grey.
1: Uh, like I said, I, I think it's a, it's a great movie, man. Uh, I think, like I said, I think it's a very surprisingly accurate depiction of de- depression, accurate depiction of fight versus flight, accurate depiction of you know what people would do given, you know, put in these extreme circumstances and, you know, would you give up? Would you keep going? What would you keep going for? Could you keep going for it? Uh, I, I just think it's fucking, it's incredible. I like I said, I love the way it's shot. I love the score. It's, fantastic acting all around. Neeson crushes it in this movie. Um, It's a very vulnerable yet very strong performance from him too at the same time. Um, I absolutely love it. It's damn near a perfect movie. Damn near.
0: Yeah. I mean, I agree with all of that. Um, And I'll just uh, use my final thoughts to mention this. Um, This was a movie that like so affected a very famous film critic, Roger Ebert, when he saw it in 2012, that for the first time, and maybe I guess the last time in his career, given this came out only about a year before he passed away, um, he was supposed to see two movies during that particular day, two press screenings, and he said, quote, after the gray was over, I watched the second film for 30 minutes, and then got up and walked out of the room. It was the first time I've ever walked out of a film, because of the previous film. The way I was feeling in my gut, it just wouldn't have been fair to the next movie. And, yeah, it's it's really emotionally affecting, which is not something you can say about the, the movie where Liam Neeson's on a train just like, I've got to find who the person is like, there's a big box full of money over in the bathroom or whatever the hell. This is a completely different movie than that. And those movies are fun, and I enjoy watching some of those, but at the same time, this is a movie that stands a bit out of that trend for Neeson for the better. But now, Adam, it's time.
1: Nope. Nope. Show's over, everybody. Thanks for listening. Catch us next week. Uh,
0: <laughs> nope. <laughs> Look, you, you you really want to, and I don't blame you, but we have to do this ad. We have to stick to our stupid fucking gimmick and your stupid fucking choice to pick movie 43. There's something I want to ask you.
1: There's something I'd like to ask you. Will you on me?
0: Wait, what did, what did you say?
1: I want you to be my first.
0: Truth or dare? Dare. Yeah. See that blind kid over there? I dare you to blow out his candles before he gets a chance to. They homeschool their son. It's
1: very important to us that Kevin has a normal and complete high school experience.
0: You dropped your books, fart face. Hey guys, come check out
1: this kid's weird. Wow. She's having a period. What do I do? Oh, we're just gonna have to plug it up. I got frozen
0: peas and a sponge. Just when I thought it couldn't get more offensive. <laughs> So, 43 came out January 25th, 2013, about a year almost to the day after The Grey. Um, And this is uh, an interesting movie, I'll say. In terms of, like, what it is, which, if you're unaware, Movie 43 is what you would call a sketch film. We've talked about anthology films on the show before, but this is a comedy sketch movie where the movie consists of, like, a wraparound segment followed up with a bunch of different sketches. And uh, the main sort of brainchild of this was Peter Fairley who had directed with his brother Bobby uh, several films before this. Like, you know, there's something about Mary and Kingpin and a bunch of other sort of comedies of, like, the late 90s, early 2000s that were known for sort of, like, the reintroduction of, like, gross-out comedy into the mainstream. And uh, this was a project he'd been wanting to do for a while because uh, he wanted to do something in the vein of, like, the old sketch movies from the 70s. There are a lot of these that came out in the wake of, like, Saturday Night Live being a big thing. Uh, Like, the big one to him is Kentucky Fried Movie, uh, which was, you know, made by John Landis and written by the Zucker Brothers, their first thing before they even rode airplane and all that. Um, And uh, it's a sketch film where the the major sort of get, the uh, attraction, is that it's full of massive, huge stars, like massive celebrities uh, down yeah. to like the, the big sketch that like they shot initially stars Hugh Jackman, and Kate Winslet. That was the sketch they kind of shot independently. And then over the course of four years used to sell the movie to other celebrities to come on in and just do like, Oh, we're going to do a crass comedy in that vein of like the old seventies sketch movies, but we're going to have big stars in it. That'll be like a fun thing. Right, Adam. That'll be fun. That'd be fun yeah. to watch. For 98 minutes, right? Didn't you have so much fun watching Movie 43, Adam?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I just want to say to all the other stars and directors and everything who signed on based on that script, um, fuck you. (laughs) You fucking morons. Did you see the same thing? Did you see it? Did you watch it? Uh, I highly doubt it.
0: No, I, I, I think did, they were just I heard did. like, "Oh, Hugh Jackman and Kate Winslet." You have photographic proof they're in the thing they shot, right? Oh, of course. We'll, we'll yeah. participate, sure. You have two, like big major stars. One of them won an Oscar recently. Sure, we'll definitely do that. Mm. Yeah. Um, this movie's rather infamous, uh, for like being one of the lower-rated movies on like Rotten Tomatoes and stuff like that. And it was critically lambasted at the time it came out. And um, as Adam kind of intimated, uh, it's well deserved because we watch this movie together. We sometimes do movie nights, and I told like Adam, and I kind of came to the mutual decision, especially as I had seen this before. Um, I was like, Adam, I'm gonna be a friend. And help you through this because you even said as much as we were watching it, like you would have never been able to watch this on your own. Mm-mm, no way. Yeah. No way in hell. Yeah. Um. And,
1: you know, I, 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 it took me a while, but I eventually apologized <laughs> <laughs> because uh, we always do this thing. We're like, "Is this the worst movie we watch for the show? Is this the worst movie we watch for the show?" And, you know, there's always the, the couple that sort of stick around the top, you know. Or the bottom, rather. Or the bottom. At the bottom, right, right. The Oogie Loves and Mew Madness and Wired and Hood of Horror. And there's all these other ones that are just really lousy, bad movies. Uh, this is absolutely, unequivocally, the worst movie we watch for this show. Uh, it's incredibly unfunny. It's incredibly sexist and racist at times filled with gross out humor which i'm not necessarily against if it works uh which it doesn't at any point in this movie and it's just a combination of these little sketches and skits that really don't tie in together at all uh with this well at least in the version we watch i haven't seen the other version but the version we watch with its wraparound stories makes zero sense None of it connects. It's all crap,
0: right? And some may argue that's like, oh, guys, does it really matter if it like makes sense? What if it was like consistently funny? When that's what mainly matters, and I guess that's true because even in like those sketch movies from earlier, which for the record, trying to recreate those movies feels weird to me because they were always kind of lopsided just by the nature of being sketch movies. Like when you watch an episode of Saturday Night Live, how many sketches are actually funny? Some would argue none. Others would argue only like a handful in an hour. And so to extend that even longer, like, this is longer than even most of those movies. Like, Kentucky Fried Movie is an hour 23 minutes, I think. And this goes an extra, like, fucking 20 minutes. And, like, there's a quote, I think it's from, like, one of the Monty Python guys who talked about when they were doing, like, some of the the sketch-oriented films they would do later. Like, particularly, like, uh, now for something completely different. They talked about how after an hour of the sketch comedy, um, the audience's interest sort of wanes. With each sketch, each like additional minute you go over an hour. And I think with movie 43, that's a huge problem because even from the jump, uh, it's not fucking funny. I've seen both versions of this movie. There's a theatrical version and an unrated cut. We watched the unrated version, which has a different wraparound segment. It's like the big major change. Both those wraparound segments are equally unfucking funny. And then all the actual sketches are still there, were already unfunny to begin with because like. In comedy, and I'm sorry everybody, we're about to become two guys explaining why a joke isn't funny. The worst people to meet at a party who will tell you why a joke doesn't fucking work. But what, what makes a joke or a sketch or anything work is really like an interesting comedic heightening of a scenario. And the only heightening any of these sketches have is just sort of like extend the crassness as opposed to like extend something, like, weird or funny or enjoyable about the segment. Like, you know, there's, there's been sketch comedy as of recent... Like, we're both fans of the um, I Think You Should Leave, the Tim Robinson show on Netflix, which is a hysterical show. And a major reasoning is, one, those episodes only last, like, 15 fucking minutes. He knows not to go much longer than, like, 20, I think, at most, of some of those episodes. And the comedic heightening is so great in those sketches because, like, they'll immediately introduce, like, a basic scenario... And then either Tim Robinson or some other weird character will be at the center of it. And the comedic heightening isn't just in, like, oh, somebody just saying fuck or somebody doing something crass or gross. It's just some weird fucking thing that gives you more about that weird character at the center of it. As opposed to here, there are no characters. There is no, like, actual interesting sort of brief glimpse at a weird comedy character that's immediately memorable that makes some people like love SNL characters and shit like that and makes them spin off in other movies and shit and have them recur like you have to have something kind of memorable a hook a fun thing that makes like that sketch funny or memorable all of these like the gimmick is just like look a celebrity you know and they're saying something crass say it again funny no it's fucking not funny (laughs)
1: I don't really have a problem with sort of gross-out humor. I don't really have a problem with crass humor. I I really, really don't. Um, But it has to work. It has to be palpable. It has to push the joke or push the story along, not just used as filler or You know, just to show how fucking edgy or cool that you are, especially when it comes to these fucking celebrities. It almost feels like an ego thing. Like, see, we could be fucking gross and cuss and be edgy too. (laughs) Yeah, look at me, look at Halle Berry and Steven Merchant. They don't look like they'd be together at all. Like, you're just—it's just so fucking stupid. This is a movie made by a bunch of grown adults. Uh, some of which have proven they could do funny work, others who have proven they could be great actors, and none of that is shown here. None of that is on exhibition here. Um, There is not one redeeming joke, skit, performance, direction uh, to this whole movie. I'd argue the only one, uh, well, I'll save it because we're going to go segment by segment real quick, but there's only one that works, A, because it's the shortest one, and B, because it's the strangest one.
0: Yeah, that's another thing, too, is all these sketches go well over... Like uh, five minutes and they all feel Ugh. like an eternity. Like yes. I said 98 minutes when you really look at like the, the bar for when you're like pausing it. uh, The end point where it's just like how much long you have left in the movie is just the infinity symbol because that's what it feels yep. like. Oh, just, yeah. It feels like it's going to go on for fucking eternity and the weird developmental process of this movie is kind of fascinating as well because it was going to be like one both the fairly brothers were going to be included. Bobby did not bother with this after a certain point he bounced and Peter was like fine I'll do it by myself but they were also going to have the two actual Zucker brothers, David and Jerry, and then Trey Parker and Matt Stone, and like each of them were gonna do like a third of the segments each. And uh, then everybody kind of backed out of that because like the studio didn't want to end up doing this movie. And then from there, so much of like getting these people together was, as you mentioned, like the Hugh Jackman and Kate Winslet sketch that we'll talk about in a minute was like the big attraction point. But they went really hard with trying to get people involved. It's a weird thing where these actors, these like people performing in the sketches, are either really committed in a way that makes it feel kind of sad because they're this committed to this terrible bit in a desperate move or are so anti being there and really don't want to be. Well, you know, with, like, Halle Berry and some of these other, like, celebrities who aren't known for comedy, that's where it comes out the most. It's just like, oh, they're trying to prove that they're funny, and they're trying to, like, you know, be along with the joke and kind of, like, express some, you know, some kind of, like, fun rebelliousness with, like, being crass in this way. But the people who feel the most checked out are any of the people who are actually known for being funny and are just kind of, like, looking desperate and just, like, I want to get the fuck out of here. And those are the people I feel the most angry at. Like, we'll get to some of them where it's just like, dude... You know what funny is, and you're just, like, flailing here and not even trying. This is really sad of you. But let's just do it, Adam. Let's let's go through these segments at least briefly, because there's not going to be a lot to say beyond just kind of the details of the sketch and why it vaguely sucks. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so the, the big thing that the changes I mentioned is that there's two different wraparound segments depending on what you watch, either the theatrical cut or the um, unrated one. We watch the unrated one, um, but the original theatrical cut, I'll just briefly say... Basically, it involves uh, Dennis Quaid being, like, a desperate screenwriter. Um, he's named Charlie Wessler, who was the actual producer of this movie, that roped everybody into being in mm. here. And he tries to pitch a bunch of movies to a studio head played by Greg Kinnear. And as they go along, they keep cutting back to this wraparound segment. And eventually, Dennis Quaid, like, holds Greg Kinnear at gunpoint. He's like, D- you need to do this. And it's like, fine, we'll do it. And we'll make it, you know, the, uh, the biggest movie since Howard the Duck is the joke they have in there. Which how dare you? I would rather watch Howard the Duck than watch this movie. <laughs> I'd rather watch most of the bad movies we've done for the show over this fucking movie. Um, but the segment that we had, that was the wraparound, is called the Thread, which involves a bunch of these teenagers releasing out YouTube videos, and like this one younger kid comes in, and they're like, oh, we gotta make up some bullshit so we can put viruses on the little kid's laptop. And just visit a bunch of porn sites. So they're like, oh, hey, we gotta find uh, Movie 43. The long-lost banned movie, which is some bullshit they make up. But then they find Movie 43 and it's all these different sketches. And it escalates to where, like, Russian mobsters get involved, one of which is Stephen Fisher, uh, Academy Award winner for Best Documentary Stephen Fisher, <laughs> is, like, one of the Russian mobsters trying to track down the movie, and then all this other stupid bullshit happens. And it causes, like, eventually the end of the world that they're watching the movie it's bad as adam mentioned uh it's it very crass it gets to a point where one of the boys is like trying to get viruses on that little kid's computer and he's looking up this one porn site and keeps jerking off to it and it turns out oh it's actually his mom who did porn that's the twist there isn't it isn't that funny adam so edgy and that's just like the big wraparound that all these segments are intertwined with um in the version that was on hbo max that we watched um didn't that set a great precedent for you adam as we got into these other things that actually involve celebrities yeah
1: man i was fucking really excited after that i was like oh yeah i'm in for a ride now and uh i technically wasn't wrong (laughs) <laughs> right
0: <laughs> you went on a ride it was just a very uncomfortable not exciting
1: ride <laughs> yeah that's accurate
0: and you know the big sketch we kind of alluded to is called the catch this is the big sketch that was also in the trailers and stuff where basically a uh, Kate Winslet's trying to get a date and trying to get a catch as it were and finds one in the form of being set up with this date with his like eligible rich bachelor played by Hugh Jackman And she meets up with him, and all the photos we see of him, and even when he's introduced, he has a scarf on. But then he takes off his scarf, and the whole joke is that oh, he has like testicles on his neck. And they proceed to have the dinner, and everyone else is like, she's like, oh my god, it's the biggest catch. He's such a good guy. You really caught a good one, lady. And Kate Winslet's just like, is is no one going to mention he has balls on his neck? That's the joke. That's the joke. That's the joke.
1: And the hair from the boss falls in his soup. <laughs>
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so this was yeah. what sold everybody. <laughs> 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 this is what everyone watching are just like, well, you know what? They're doing it. Uh, we'll go ahead and do it, too. We might as well just continue. The next one is called uh, Get a Job, Motherfucker. And it is about a couple who are homeschooling their teenage son, the couple being played by Liev Schreiber and Naomi Watts. And the premise of this sketch is they really want to give this kid the full sort of high school experience just beyond education. Just like actually give him like social interactions like that. One of the sketches where the premise sounds kind of funny of just Mm -hmm. like, Oh, they have to imitate all the other things about high school. That's great. And the only jokes that they have are just like, Oh, they're going to abuse the kid. Yeah. They bully him. Yeah. They bully him and abuse him and, one of them, at least, it very explicitly sexually bless the kid, the mom. And the joke at the end of it is just like, oh, after all of that, uh, the kid is, like, messed up and fucked up. Yeah. No wonder these two aren't together anymore. I can't believe why. I was going to say, oh, I wonder why.
1: <laughs> oh, this was the catalyst right here. This might be one of the ones that really disappointed me the most, to be honest, out of all the sketches. And I know it's technically the second sketch. Uh, but... Like well, because you, you had so- hope at that point still for, like, some Well, I was curious. I'm <laughs> like, well, maybe one of these will be funny. And the, poten- the potential of this to be funny is there. It could be funny to where, like you said, they give them the complete high school experience. And, yeah, you add in the bullying part, but also there's so much more you could do with it. And they just go so lowbrow so fast with it. And it's just an utter failure. Of-
0: yes, Speaking of utter failures, the next sketch is The Proposition, and this stars another couple who would later get married and then divorce after this, uh, Anna Ferris and Chris Pratt, who are um, a couple who are out on a picnic. Chris Pratt's about to ask her to marry him, and she's just, like, trying to say something first, and what she says is a proposition of, will you poop on me? So she's into scat.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the whole thing after that is Chris Pratt, you know, eating burritos and getting ready to try and have, like, a sexual situation where he shits on Anna Faris. And then, you know, there's an argument, and it's like, oh, no, honey, come back. And they run into the street, and Chris Pratt gets hit by a car, and he shits all over the car and onto the street. And then they make up.
1: Yep. J.B. Smoove is in this.
0: Yes, talking about different types of shits, right?
1: <laughs> and he's
0: a dude who, like, can pop up in anything, even terrible shit, and no pun intended. And actually kind of, like, give me a few laughs. Yes. Like, I've seen dire comedies, and J.B. Smoove just walks in very funny and then leaves. I'm just like, oh, thank you, J.P. You give me oh, a yeah. Nope. Not even this movie can get that.
1: Good example of Date Night with Steve Carell and Tina Fey. J.B. Smoove is in it for, like, a couple scenes, and he's really funny. Lowest common denominator bullshit
0: humor. It's, it's- yes. Speaking of which, uh, so the next segment is called Veronica. <laughs> and it's the premise of this one is Kieran Culkin plays a grocery store... Uh, cashier who is like on the AP is just like now in aisle seven a sale on this and uh, his girlfriend walks in played by Emma Stone and Emma Stone and him have an argument that goes back and forth with lines like "Um, oh how's your HPV doing it's your HPV I'm just holding it for you and stuff like that and everyone can hear it over the AP. That's the or PA. Sorry, Jesus. The PA. Yeah. This movie has me back, going back yeah. and forth. Just my entire concept of reality shifted. Um, but but yeah, and everyone can hear their dirty talk. Yep.
1: Yeah. Much like all the other skits, I have no idea what the point of this is whatsoever.
0: There's kind of a clever idea in theory, like, at the end of the sketch where everybody hears all of this, and then the one old man goes up just like, I have never seen a more powerful display of love in all my life. And, like, in theory I think that might be funny if the sketch didn't just go on for fucking ever with their back and forth, and all of it wasn't funny. Like, if it was very quick, and then they had that guy come up with the fucking, like, the romantic comment, like, you love her, then go to her. That might be funny, but, like, you know, with these other sketch movies... All the sketches weren't, like, full-length, giant, like, sketches that went on for fucking ever. Like, in Kentucky Fried Movie, my favorite bits in that movie tend to be the small short gags. Like, they'll have the news anchor show up and just, like, the popcorn you're eating has been pissed in. Film at 11. And then they move on. <laughs> like, yeah. that's a funny, quick bit. <laughs> like, that works as opposed to, like, just going on with just, like, get it? Look, they're saying awful things that are really, really crass to each other. And it's Emma Stone and Kieran Culkin. How weird is that? Um, it's not funny. No. No, it's just kind of, like, repetitive and dull and endlessly unfunny. Speaking of which, iBabe <laughs> is the next segment. Um, oh, that boy. Where we saw, like, a bunch of, like, ads for this where it's just, like, it's an MP3 player where the twist is it's basically, like, an iPod but is giant and there's a naked lady inside. And this sketch is, like, the boardroom meeting for all the development executives about this where apparently there's been a recurring problem of... Teenage boys getting the iBabe and sticking their dicks into like the power fan, thus mangling their penises. Yeah. And the whole joke is like Kate Bosworth's trying to tell this to like Richard Gere and As of Manvi and Jack McBray, who are all on the board. And these guys are so stupid that they don't get that it's like, oh, we should probably put like a warning label or this is clearly dangerous and all sorts of they're Like, no, no, there's nothing there. There's some kind of joke there where it's like all these guys are oblivious to pointing out the crass sexuality of like teenage boys but there's nothing funny with like the actual filling out of that premise at all and you can clearly tell that richard Gere doesn't give a shit because he was sort of the infamous holdout example where mm-hmm. like apparently mr charlie wassler's uh, the godfather of richard Gere's stepdaughter and mm-hmm. so he was just like hey can you do this for me she's like yeah but it's going to be like another year before I'm available. Okay, we'll wait for you. And they did. And then he's like, oh, um, the thing is, I can't shoot in L.A. like you wanted me to anymore. You have to move it to New York. Okay. And uh, I only have four days available. Okay. Fuck. God damn it. <laughs> and he has just such contempt in his face. And he's oh, not yeah, and- he has no attempt to sell the joke whatsoever.
1: Oh, yeah, dude. He's got maybe what? two, three lines, at best, it's mostly just reaction shots of his face and everybody else talking around him, and I, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't Re- like
0: how it makes me feel. Uh, and it's it's dumb, it's boring, it's bad. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, superhero <laughs> speed dating is the uh, next segment. Fuck. And this one uh, involves not just a bunch of celebrities, but also uh, recognizable IP. Uh, yes, because um, this is about DC superheroes uh, going through speed dating, and involves Batman and Robin, played by Jason Sudeikis and Justin Long, as they go through, like, a bunch of speed-dating things. And it's like, oh, there's Lois Lane. It's played by Uma Thurman. Um, and the whole premise is like, oh, no, you're going to upset Superman, who comes in, played by Bobby Cannavale. Um, and then, oh, look, there's Kristen Bell, Supergirl. Batman is trying to give Robin lines underneath the table, but is also looking up her skirt. All right, And then the Penguin, it turns out, is there, played by John Hodgman, who I was so bummed to see. Because, like, Justin Long, look, he's desperate. I'm sure he needed this. It's fine. But mm-hmm. apparently he roped in John Hodgman, who he had worked with on, like, the Mac PC commercials, with, like, hey, can you come over and do this thing for me? And it's like, sure, no problem. And he was apparently, John Hodgman's unaware of what the sketch was or whatever. But at the same time, John should have gotten there and been like, man, I don't know. I I really, and you can see that on his face, it's just like, I'm, ugh, I, I don't give a shit. And even Sudeikis as well, Mr. fucking Ted Laszlo, comes in and is just, like, not at all trying to sell this whatsoever. And, uh, yeah, Leslie Bibb is also there as Wonder Woman, and Robin almost gets with, you know, it seems like he gets with Supergirl, but it turns out it's actually fucking, uh the Riddler in disguise, so we kissed a dude. Ha 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 ha.
1: they wouldn't do that in the comics, so it's funny. Okay, so then there's the next bit, which I think is
0: what you were referencing called Machine Kids, where it's very short, like you mentioned, it's like a weird PSA parody. Where the premise is like, oh, you get mad at vending machines and other machines like that. You shouldn't really get mad at the machines because there are little children working inside the machines to give you the coke or whatever. And they cut inside these like the photocopier or the soda machine shit. There's like little children in there who look scared. And when we were watching this, I think it was very clear. Like this is technically the best sketch in that it's kind of creative. It's not that funny. It's just a weird visual. But at the same time, they don't stay too long they have kind of a creative look it's shot well or whatever and it kind of sells the joke a bit better um, and then they leave Yeah. by comparison to everything else Comedia della Arte. no <laughs> right I, I completely Brilliant. agree at, at least it, it's something different yeah. Shout out, by the way these have all been directed by a bunch of different people but uh, Jonathan Van Tulliken is the guy who directed this good on you man you tried unlike yeah. like Stephen Brill or Griffin Dunn or Peter Farrelly or any of these other fuckers um, who didn't seem to try that much. Anyway, the next terrible segment um, is called Middle School Date. And the premise of this one is Chloe Moretz is on, like, you know, a middle school date with a young boy um, at the house of the young boy. And while they're there, uh, she gets her first period. And the other men that are in the house, which includes, like, Christopher mintz and Patrick Warburton and then her dad, Matt Walsh, comes in, they have no idea how to deal with a period. <laughs> so so they go like all over the top just like oh man we gotta like plug it up we gotta do something uh here's a giant maxi pad on a stick or oh here's like a, a plug you can plug it up oh my god what are we gonna do and like okay there could be some kind of like f- interesting commentary to the sketch of like oh these men have no idea how to deal with something as simple as like a period the actual filling out of the sketch is just like nothing and then they even like whatever kind of satiric intent could have been there is totally destroyed by... The segment ends with Patrick Warburton turning on the TV, and there's a fake Tampax ad where Mm -hmm. the premise is there are two women going into the water on the beach, and uh, one of them apparently has Tampax on and the other one doesn't, and the one who doesn't gets eaten by a shark because they're attracted by blood.
1: (laughs) It's true. Sharks are attracted by blood. Oh, so much thought and intelligence went into this. (sighs) you know, to, to, to sort of fill everybody in after we watched this movie. And I'm only doing telling you this because it started probably really right around this point for, for me and maybe for both of us. It was a lot of, Oh, with our basic responses to everything that was going on. There was a lot of,
0: no. Coincidentally, I think this is around like the hour point of the movie which kind of proves that thesis I said earlier at the start of yeah. the discussion. <laughs> that, like, after an hour, especially with a terribly unfunny sketch thing, like, at least by this point, it would have probably been done, as opposed to, oh, no, we still have another, like, five sketches to go, baby. Because uh, then we have Happy Birthday, where uh, the premise of this one is it's Johnny Knoxville and Sean William Scott, who are buddies, and Johnny Knoxville is like, hey, it's your birthday, man, I got you a present. And it's like, oh, it's a pot of gold. It's like, how did you get this pot of gold, man? And he goes into the basement. It turns out he stole it from a leprechaun, who's played by Gerard Butler's face being poorly put onto a little person. You know, the leprechaun's down there and says a bunch of curse words and then gets free and punches the shit out of both of them. And then his brother leprechaun comes down and starts causing chaos, too. It's also played by Gerard Butler, but he's got red hair this time. And then they both, you know, get rid of the leprechauns. And they're like, oh, man, I almost forgot. There's another part of your gift. And then there's a storybook fairy who apparently gives blowjobs for gold coins. Did we mention this segment was directed by Brett Ratner?
1: I mean, what a big surprise. Wow. No, this is, um again,
0: fucking stupid. I feel like we're repeating ourselves at this point to kind of like just say that for every single segment. Maybe we should go a bit more rapid fire (laughs) with the rest of the segments we got left. Next one, Truth or Dare, uh, where um, the premise is Halle Berry and Stephen Merchant are people going on a blind date. And they're like, let's not have the same boring conversations. Let's do Truth or Dare. And so they play Truth or Dare with each other, but escalates into wacky things like, oh, hey, Halle Berry, I dare you to blow out the candles on that blind kid's cake. And She does huh oh hey Stephen merchant i dare you to grab that guy's ass over at the bar <laughs> oh hey let's escalate this even further to where we're getting like weird plastic surgery um that makes one of us look horribly like mutated puffy and the other one literally into like an asian stereotype Halle berry makes guacamole with her breast and Stephen merchant gets a tattoo of a dick on his face so funny um then there's victory's glory Uh, which the premise of this one is it takes place in the 50s and a basketball coach is uh, played by Terrence Howard is telling all of these young black players to be like, hey, you you can get in the ball. You've already got the biggest advantage of all. You guys are black. You can kick all these white kids' asses because you're great at basketball because you're black. And then the credits start for a bit and we thought there was mercy. And then midway through, there's another sketch uh, called... Weasel, where the premise is Elizabeth Banks and Josh Jumel are a couple who are kind of into each other, but Josh Jumel has a cat who is presented as this like flash animated cat who is so in love with Josh Jumel and is so territorial that every time Elizabeth Banks tries to come on to Josh Jumel, the cat starts like attacking her violently, and there's a shot of the cat masturbating to pictures of Josh Jumel. Uh, but anytime Josh Jumel. Is in the room, he's a great little cat and Elizabeth Banks is angry and then she, you know, kicks the cat around after a certain point into a birthday party and then the ending is everyone being like how can you attack that cat and all these kids at a birthday party stab Elizabeth Banks to death.
1: Yeah. It's a very nice uh, way know, wrap it up. Uh. <laughs> yep.
0: And by the way, that one was made by James Gunn, who has famously said, like, I kind of wrote that off on a whim Because Elizabeth Banks, who he'd worked with before and also directed the middle school date segment, was like, hey, you should come on board and have a fun time with the sketch. And um, apparently he didn't get to edit it, and he's refused to watch it. And I don't blame him, um, because none of you should watch this. If going through all of these segments was worth anything, it was to impart to any of you who were mildly curious about, like, oh my god, all these Academy Award nominees and winners in this movie? I'm, I'm so... Interested in this? I can't believe this exists. I should probably watch this. um This is a firm warning not to. Not because like, oh, it's too offensive. Oh, it's too shocking. It's because just likely because we trust and respect our audience. um You probably won't find it funny because it isn't.
1: Let's put it this way: I'd be incredibly surprised if anybody who watches this comes back and is like, you know, that wasn't that bad. We decided while watching this, like, the only way we're going to be able to do this. Is if we go through it sketch by sketch, because if not, it would be what sort of? I'm sure if you're listening, started to happen where we're just going, oh, it's fucking terrible, the worst, unfunny, most juvenile fucking humor uh, I've ever seen put on screen.
0: Yeah, you know, this movie kind of reminds me of like this argument that pops up all the time, and I fucking hate it. Uh, from you know either people who want to like bring comedy back to something they thought of when, when they were kids or even like modern stand-ups who have this problem of just like, oh man, you can't say anything offensive these days. It's just like, oh, everyone's too quote-unquote woke or whatever the hell. Uh, why can't we bring comedy back to this You know, earlier point? Like, you know, you can't do a satire like Blazing Saddles in this day and age. Everyone would be too offended by it. And it's like, the problem I don't think is necessarily just in like, oh, it's offensive humor. It's just the fact that like, Comedy's fucking evolved since, like, 1974, guys. Like, comedy isn't in the exact same place it was, and I'm happy it Mm -hmm. Because I wouldn't want just the same exact fucking joke that we were laughing at 50 years ago to be, like, somewhat relevant now. It's not. It's not relevant anymore. You gotta fucking evolve with the times. Not even just in a, like, oh, yeah, you can't be offensive kind of thing. It's more just like... Mm -hmm repeating the same fucking joke all the time isn't fucking funny doing the exact same type of humor doesn't work anymore so like fucking evolve or quit (laughs) no i completely agree And the thing is too and i don't think you're
1: saying and i don't think really anybody's saying like dude if you still enjoy blazing saddles and you still like airplane and you still like you know even animal house as problematic as it is or if you still think those are funny you could still watch those movies
0: Blazing Sounds, I think, is still a very funny movie. And I think that's inherent to the fact that, like, the time that it was specifically made. Like, people who say, oh, you can't make any of these comedies again. Why would you want to? Right, why would you want to, more importantly, what is it actually being transgressive against? Those movies were transgressive against a specific yeah. time and place that they were right.
1: made. If not, if you're making that shit now, you are literally going out of your way to be offensive. You're going out of your way now to be a fucking prick and to be an asshole. You know, it's the age-old thing, like, you have the right to say anything you want make whatever joke you want. You do have that right. It doesn't mean you should.
0: Or it doesn't mean that we can't react to it.
1: Right, exactly, exactly. Why would you want another twenty? There's something about Marys or another twenty, you know, blazing Saddles, or another, you know, on and on and on. Why would you want that? I mean, if that's your bag, if you if only one type of thing makes you laugh and one joke is the only joke that can make you laugh, then all right, I guess I get it. But then just watch that movie.
0: You know, Peter Fairley, I guess learned that from this movie because he's like, you know what? I'm not going to make any more crass comedies anymore. I'm going to make a movie about racism with green book and he won two oscars so
1: the guy who fucking shepherded this project has won two academy awards
0: post the movie (laughs) i know Oh, fuck. The Fairleys, like, older movies, while some of them can be kind of dated to some degree, are still funny. Like, I rewatched Kingpin earlier this week. I love That movie's great.
1: Fucking hilarious.
0: When I watch the movie, like, it'll have those gross-out jokes, and those aren't my favorite jokes in that movie, but the fun stuff is seeing those two interact together. Like, Randy Quaid and Woody Harrelson are, like, really funny as a team because Mm -hmm. there's, like, an interesting comedic dynamic of, like, one is a washed-up piece-of-shit bowler, and then Randy Quaid is, like, this incredibly likable innocent Amish dude who is just, like, really endearing every time you see him go around. There's, like, an interesting dynamic. You know what? I'll say this. Way better road movie about two people from different backgrounds coming together and learning from each other than fucking Green Book was. Should have given the Best Picture Oscar to Kingpin. Oh, my God. I mean, I don't disagree. But, wow. <laughs> look, look for the record, I mean, Bill Murray should have won Best Supporting Actor for that movie. Oh, 100 so Just so on 100%. the strength of that one bit where Randy Quaid, like, almost attacks him, and then he runs away to his hotel
1: room. <laughs> the way he's squeaking as he runs and shit. <laughs> yeah, it's so good.
0: It's one of the funniest so things good. I've ever seen. Um, hmm, it's almost a protagonist. we're talking, well, we're about, talking a about a funnier movie. movie. Yeah, Hey, yeah, hey,
1: exactly. yeah, 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 yeah.
0: English Bulldog,
1: um, one testicle, $500. Jesus! Think for that price, you get both testicles.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a really great funny line to quote from that movie. Now, 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 Adam, quote one from movie
1: forty-three. Uh I
0: give blowjobs for gold coins. Isn't that the line?
1: <laughs> That's the only line you can think of, just because how offensive and stupid it is.
0: No, and and you were laughing there, it's hysterical. We flipped. Tossed, we flipped the we flipped. switch. Uh great yep. movie, awesome. Ten out of ten. Ten out of uh, 10, ten. Everybody, funniest movie ever. Would put myself through that torture again. Um. Uh, I have to stop talking about this. Fuck this thing. Fuck this awful piece of shit thing. That is definitely the worst movie we've ever talked about on the show. Adam, do you have any other final thoughts besides that? No. Great. So now we have our segment, The Double Redo, where every week Adam and I, uh, you know, recommend and uh, don't recommend uh, two good ones, two bad ones each. A, A double feature we'd recommend you all. Watch based on the topic, and one that we would recommend you not watch based on the topic. So, for January releases, Adam, yeah. go ahead with your choices. All righty. Uh,
1: for my good, and I'm going to be brief on these, uh, but for my good, I have the original From Dust Till Dawn uh, with Tarantino and George Clooney, directed by Robert Rodriguez. I think it's just a fun movie. It's it's so macho machismo, but over the top and violent. And there's a lot of funny bits to it, uh, especially with Fred Williamson and Tom Savini. Crazy off the wall action vampire movie. And then my, my other one is... It's so weird. This movie, for some reason, it's one of my favorite movies. I don't know why. I can't tell you why. Uh, But I I just love it. I'll watch it anytime it's on. And that is the mid-2000s version of The Count of Monte Cristo with Jim Cavizio, who, you know, problem. I think it's just a wonderful swashbuckling adventure. There's a lot of intrigue and double-cross and, you know, secrets. and all. I, I just absolutely love it. And then for my bad, I, Frankenstein with Aaron Eckhart, so Hot Frankenstein. It's one of the biggest pieces of shit at the tail end of when every movie was for some reason ripping off underworld i would say this is the movie that really put the nail in that coffin to where people are like okay this formula doesn't work any anymore like we got to change it because this is just a stink fest of a film awful acting awful action awful plot awful cgi uh nothing about it works and then uh very similar i have texas chainsaw 3d which completely throws out the second movie, which is a huge mistake and totally just fucks with time in every way. Like, uh, it's supposed to be, you know, 20 years later, but clearly it's 30 years later. And we know that, uh, but we just figured literally basically to paraphrase the writers, horror fans don't care about that stuff. They just want to see a text chainsaw movie. You're right. We're all so dumb. I don't care about time. I want to see Scott Eastwood and that Daddario lady. She's pretty. Uh, it's a terrible film, terrible CGI, terrible acting. Uh, some of the worst young age CGI slash makeup I might have ever seen in a movie. Um, and it, it, it relies too heavy on the, look, let's throw something at the camera. Woo, 3D. Um, it's it's dog shit.
0: Um, I haven't seen Count of Monte Cristo. I know you've talked about that one quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I think I've avoided it mainly because of uh, Cavizial. Just even before I found it that dude... Uh, became a weird conspiracy theorist dude uh, I just was not usually a huge fan of that guy in the movies I had seen him in um, but um, I have seen your other movies um, From Dusk Till Dawn is an interesting uh, little film I would say um, it, It's you forgot to mention the fact that while it does have that vampire stuff the whole gimmick of the movie is that it doesn't start out that way it starts off as more of like a, a pretty um, tense crime thriller movie between uh, Clooney and Quentin Tarantino. And uh, I think that many people have said, like, oh, man, I preferred the first half or second half, whatever. Um, I like a lot of aspects of the first half, except for Tarantino as an actor. And also just some of the things I think that character does feel like they're kind of skirting a line in a way that just feels kind of, you know just doing it for the sake of doing it like almost in not as bad a movie 43 way but just some of the implications I don't feel that needed Um, And I think the second half is you know a much sillier movie that doesn't have as like developed characters but I like the idea that like George Clooney and, like, Harvey Keitel, I think, are really great. And I think they carry over a lot of that seriousness. Even Juliette Lewis as well and the other guy, the adopted son. Kind of carry over a lot of that, like, weight into the silly, wacky vampire movie that happens after that point. And there's a lot of, like, cool, like, uh, Greg Nicotero effects. And, um, so, so like, Selma Hayek has her big dance sequence. It's really fascinating in the middle of that movie. And then I, Frankenstein, and Texas Chainsaw 3D were both released around when I was doing a horror movie podcast, and those were both subjects du jour for episodes. And those were two examples where like every January for that podcast, I would have to go to the theater and see these bullshit horror movies that were dumped in January. And those would be the absolute moments where I'd be like, what am I fucking doing? Why am I seeing fucking hot Frankenstein talk with Gargoyle Jai Courtney, who you didn't mention, (laughs) is also in there. There was a
1: fucking reason why. Don't you ever say that name again.
0: <laughs> oh, that's true. If I say it two more times, you might appear. It's like Beetlejuice. I mean, with I, Frankenstein, uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's a really sad disappointment, especially for Aaron Eckhart, who was an actor I enjoyed in earlier movies. Like, I particularly say thank you for smoking, and even The Dark Knight, I think he's quite good in. Um, and then after that point, man, he just, his career careened off the fucking rails and he was just doing shit like this. I, I would say it gets even worse by the time he does Incarnate. Mm. Dude,
1: <laughs> I just, I felt
0: so fucking bad for that dude, just doing all those shitty horror movies. Um, And Texas Chainsaw 3D, I would say, is not the worst Texas Chainsaw movie by like a hair. Uh, but 3D is very bad, very terrible. Just does so much weird continuity shit that doesn't make any sense. Even like you were talking about. The timeline jump, which is really weird because it starts off with a segment that takes place like within the same like, I don't know, day or so of the first movie. And you have like a bunch of people like Bill Mosley shows up as a character. um, And the guy who played Grandpa reprises his role, stuff like that. Uh, Gunnar Hansen's in there. He's like a producer on the movie, too. And it's like, oh, man, they kind of recreated the look of that set. And there's sort of like a Hatfield and McCoy thing established between the Sawyers and another family. That sounds interesting. But then that's just for the opening sequence and they cut to what's supposed to be modern day, so 40 years later. And then the protagonists include Alexandra Daddario, who is the child that gets rescued at the end of that. She should be like 45 as opposed to 25. And uh, it's really weird. And like you mentioned, it doesn't feel like they really cared. On that note, aren't we all excited for the new Texas Chainsaw coming in February?
1: Woo! Oh, yeah, can't wait.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh. Yeah. So, my choices for the double redo I have my two good um, Are One of them is my alternate choice, they almost did for the show called Matinee. Which I would argue kind of fits into the niche thing we were talking about earlier, where this feels like a movie a studio has no idea what to do with in, like, 1993. Like, what the fuck do we do with this movie where it's mainly kind of like a coming-of-age dramedy in the middle of, like, the Cuban Missile Crisis in Florida. With a lot of, like, kid actors who are, like, really nice and it's like a fond back-and-forth between those kids. But also a recurring side character who is visiting this town and trying to put out his new schlocky sci-fi movie Is his producer played by John Goodman going full William Castle with so many fun bits and Kathy Moriarty is the leading lady who is completely over his shit. They are so fun together. The movie is worth watching for... The main stuff is fun but Goodman is so fucking committed to being like a sleazy, schlocky producer who's doing all the William Castle gimmick stuff and has Kathy Moriarty like... Outside of the theater, as a nurse, being like, you have to sign a waiver, so if you die from fright, you won't sue the company <laughs> who made the movie just to sell the bit. It's so charming and fun, and I think the a movie that really deserves a lot more love, and it's Joe Dante, who we love on the show, I would definitely say. It's one that got so lost to time when it came out in January of 1993, but deserves an even bigger cult following than it already has. Speaking of which, a movie that I think also is a great example of this is much more recent, from 2017, The Kid Who Would Be King, which is the follow-up movie from director Joe Cornish to Attack the Block, which came out quite a while after Attack the Block, which is a great little, like... Um, adolescent-focused alien attack movie taking place in London. In this case, it's even, like, younger kids who are more, like, primary school age where the premise is they discover Excalibur and this, like, sort of um, medieval evil has unleashed itself on their primary school. And it's about, like, these kids basically hooking up with, like, Merlin who is, like, almost eternally young but will occasionally go back to his older self. Um, And it's... This really cute, like, kid fantasy comedy movie that uh, has a lot of heart to it, has a lot of interesting, like, back and forth with the kids, lots of humor, like Attack the Block did, but also a lot of great fantasy sequences. Rebecca Ferguson plays the um, the evil witch character who's, like, come back and is, like, really unnerving as a villain in that movie. Um, And, you know, especially, like, all the kids are great, but shout out to the young guy who's, like, he's sort of, like, teenage. He's, like, the oldest kid in um of the cast who plays like the younger version of merlin that shows up is so fucking funny and the premise like he works at like a chicken shack and he's been doing that for centuries i guess working at like odd jobs and the kids go "We're just like finally i can go out and i can fulfill my purpose because excalibur has been discovered it's a really cute fun movie that really did not go anywhere and has disappeared even more so than a bad name. There's no real cult following around this movie. It's very fun, and I hope more people see it, especially on that recommendation. It's a very cute, enjoyable, little adventure, fantasy, kids' comedy movie. Um, And then the bad, just really briefly, I have two movies that kind of represent everything people think of when they think of a shitty Dump Month January movie. I have first The Devil Inside, which is a found-footage Horror movie that is all about, like, oh, possession and um, this young girl trying to find her mom who's been, like, in a mental ward for several years. And it's like, oh my God, there's this whole back and forth about, like, can they save the mom or whatever. And this is a movie that's so infamous for being, like, one in general, just a bad, you know, uh, found footage horror movie, but is even worse for the fact that after its really bullshit whole premise goes along. The movie fades to black, and then a message pops up for, like, um, for more information, go to the promotional website for the devil inside. And naturally, everyone who saw this movie was like, this is fucking bullshit. How dare you do this? You're trying to sell us to go on the website to finish your fucking movie. Which is even funnier, given uh, that website is no longer up, like, I think ever since, like, a year after this movie fucking came out. So that's just forever on the movie, and no one can ever find out whatever happened. Let's think like, The Wayback Machine and find out, oh, there are a bunch of dumb clips that kind of told more of the story, but not really. Um, so that's pretty terrible. And then, you know, speaking of a bad comedy, Adam, um, another one, sort of, like, these movies dominated in Januarys from, like, 2006 to around 2008 or so. Uh, these spoof movies from uh, Jason Friedberg and Aaron Seltzer, uh, specifically the one I'm spotlighting is Epic Movie. Where the entire premise of these movies was, oh, hey, we have to put out a movie that kind of, like, makes fun of things in really quick bites, despite having a weird story that barely matters at all. Just to hang together all these parodies, which are basically just like, oh, hey, look, it's this character from this movie. Like, this is around this time of, like, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. Like, oh, look, it's Aslan the lion. And then Aslan, like, farts or something. Or, oh, look, it's Willy Wonka, and Willy Wonka shows up, and the whole premise is, oh, he's like creepy Johnny Depp uh, guy. But this one is, I think, even more offensive than some of the other ones, because it was one of the ones that had actual talented comedic people in there. Like, Willy Wonka is played by Crispin Glover. The White Witch is played by Jennifer Coolidge. Aslan is played by Fred Willard. There's, like, a bunch of, like, actually funny comedic people in the movie who are just stranded in the middle of a movie where... There are all these terrible parodies that are just like referencing what happened before. Like, Oh look, we're in the middle of Narnia. Look, it's Borat. And Borat showed up and said, my wife. Funny. All right.
1: <laughs> Real. right. Uh, I've seen three of your four. I've never seen the kid who would be king. Uh, for some reason, I just never got around to it. I, I've kind of always wanted to, because even I remember you, be positive on it when it's been brought up before. Uh, so it's just one of those that I still haven't seen, but I, I definitely want to. Um, and Matinee, I love. I absolutely love Matinee. And like you said, yeah, huge Joe Dante fan. I love old William Kassa movies. I love John Goodman. It's kind of, that movie just works on so many levels for me. And, and it is criminally underseen. And I, I really hope uh, more people seek that one out as well. And uh, briefly, yeah, The Devil Inside can go fuck itself. I saw that at the show. I don't remember why I, I, I probably went with somebody who wanted to see it like a buddy or something. And I remember just the pure white hot rage coming off my friend at the end. Like I was, I was just so nonplussed, but I was like, yeah, it fucking sucked. I expect it to suck, but he was so mad uh, to where we're in the car. And he starts like violently shaking on the, on the steering wheel. He's like, what the fuck was that? What the fuck? Like, he was so mad. And I'm like, well, yeah, well, what did you expect? Um, and then Epic Movie, I know I've seen it, uh, but those all run together so bad for me. There's like, what, Epic Movie, Date Movie, Superhero Movie, Disaster Movie. Like, there were so many of them.
0: And one that bucked the naming convention by being called Meet the Spartans. Ah, yeah, naming. right. <laughs> now, <laughs> now,
1: is Epic Movie the one with, like, Cal pens in it as well? Yes, he's like one of the main leads. Like, it's the Narnia kids, basically. Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm, I... I <sighs> yeah, I just there's so much dumb shit, like the the fake Amy Adams from Enchanted. Oh, oh she gets hit by a car. You're like, oh, great. That's disaster movie, sir. Oh, I don't know, man. I, that's what I'm saying. But that's the level of humor in all of them. Like, oh, it's Kim Kardashian. Oh, she gets crushed miley cyrus gets hit by a car too or a boulder or something like this is so fucking like it's so
0: stupid but the worst thing is in the middle of epic movie there's that point where they just do a version of lazy sunday yep Where like it's the jack sparrow parody who's just like we're the pirates what of the caribbean just like you guys are just stealing a joke
1: yeah you're stealing a funny bit <laughs> you're literally just 100 percent stealing it uh yeah no it's just not funny uh it's just pop culture reference, pop culture reference, pop culture reference. And it's like, you know, sheep are like, I oh, know that name. <laughs> this is funny. <laughs> oh, I've heard of him.
0: Which that along with even like a movie 43, these kind of movies die on the vine the moment like YouTube becomes a thing. And you yes. can just do that in a five minute video that is just like out within weeks of that thing coming out. And so yep. you don't have to wait like five months for them to have seen a trailer and then make a joke of just like, look, here's a pop culture reference to a thing. Yep. Uh, terrible
1: film. Uh, those movies were all bad. Not a single one of them was good. Uh, it's just date movie made enough money. So like, oh, let's keep making them. And uh, yep, those were dark days.
0: Off the strength of those guys wrote the initial draft of Scary Movie. And all the trailers were just like from the guys who wrote Scary Movie. And it's like really the guys who wrote the initial draft that the Wayans Brothers made a bit funnier. Yeah, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, no, those are all terrible films.
1: I, I agree with all of your choices, for sure.
0: Uh, so let's just go ahead and quickly repeat our titles here for everybody. Adam.
1: So my good choices was Count of Monte Cristo and From Dusk Till Dawn. And my bad choices were I, Frankenstein and Texas Chainsaw 3D.
0: And then uh, my choices I had were Matinee and The Kid Who Would Be King. And then uh, my bad choices were The Devil Inside, an epic movie. But yes, those are our choices. So definitely, if you have your choices uh, to submit to us, please submit it to our like socials and our email, which we'll read out here in a second. And uh, we have a couple people want to thank you know, before we uh, get to the end of the show and do our picking for next week. Stay tuned for that. Uh, so thanks to Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com thanks to Christian Thorlally for our artwork follow him at night of water that's night with a k underscore of underscore water uh, on twitter uh, you can follow him and uh, find a link to read all his great artwork at various different places and thanks of course to our loyal patreon supporters at patreon.com slash pod, where for just one dollar you get uh, to listen to bonus podcasts we do and also in polls uh, for you know movies and topics we cover and uh, you know, you're getting some pretty good stuff uh, as we uh, get through January here. First, on this very week that we'll be posting this episode you get to vote in our poll about uh, a topic that we can do in February for 1970s related films. Now this is interesting. We've done years in film before and so one of the choices is the year 1977 in film so we'd cover a good and a bad movie released in that particular year But the other choice is very interesting. We have uh, 70s period pieces, so movies that were maybe made after the 70s that uh, take place in the decade. So uh, two interesting choices, Uh, a lot of good movies from 1977, a lot of good movies that take place in the 70s. I'm I'm very curious uh, where our patrons will go if you just pay the $1 you get to vote in that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm good either way, honestly. I think we're going to have a fun discussion either way.
0: Yes, and uh, you also will be able to listen to some bonus podcasts, uh, like we do On the Edge of Relevance, where we cover recent movies that are in theaters or streaming. And, you know, around the time this has come out, you would have uh, been able to hear us uh, do On the Edge of Relevance on Scream, the recent big release, the new entry in the franchise, or as we like to call it, Adam, Five Cream. Absolutely. As it should be. Right, and I found out apparently uh, the Radio Silence guys, the directors on the set, uh, they all called it Five Cream. So, yeah. uh, you, you cowards who re- distributed the movie wouldn't even respect the director's vision and call it Five I Cream. Mean, you cowards. Bastards. Cowards, all of you. Mm-hmm. Um... And uh, also, uh, near the end of the month, we will have um, another bonus podcast. we like to do one big one uh, outside, like, On the Edge of Relevance and some other stuff. And uh, that'll be our top ten film scores. Adam and I will each have ten choices for top ten film scores. And uh, I'll just tell you guys, in planning it, um, it's been brutal cutting that down <laughs> from, like, huge like, short lists to the actual ten. Pretty rough on my end. I, I, I mean...
1: Absolutely. I'm not near where I want to be as far as finalized yet.
0: Yeah. So uh, we'll count that down for the both of us uh, by the end of the month, by January 31st. Um, so, yeah, for $1, that's a lot. So Yeah, that's a lot to help uh, shape the show and also uh, get more of the show in audio form. It's a lot of fun. Um, oh,
1: absolutely. And-
0: yeah, and for more fun from us, uh, find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. Uh, you can also uh, submit feedback to us on our email, double at gmail.com, all spelled out. For our own individual antics, you can find uh, me... On Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxes at Not the Who's Tommy. I also do some writing at both uh, film-cred.com and my blog MarianiThomas.wordpress.com. Where recently I put out my top twenty films of 2021. Finally, finalized that, and you can all read that over there uh, with my varied choices for the best films of the year.
1: Yes, and a very good list. Uh, Thank you. You can find me on Twitter, or Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A T O M underscore O R underscore A D A M. And you can also find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson, S C H W A N D T S O N.
0: And uh, for more of our antics, please uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. Uh, we're a part of the Talk Film Society podcast network. So, uh, you know, while you're listening to us, please dig into all the other great shows that are on the network. A lot of fun uh, film related uh discussions that are going on there from a bunch of great people um and you can also dig into our archives uh because we started with 191 on the uh talk from society network so there's 190 other episodes folks on our Podbean main feed link in the description hundreds of hours of content literally of us just doing this for a while we've been doing it for quite a bit and we'll be doing it for the foreseeable future yeah Yeah. I don't know, Movie43 tested that quite Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and uh, you know if you can't support us on the Patreon financially, the completely free way to help us out and get more people to listen is to simply rate, review or share the show around because it gets us more visibility and helps out with the algorithms yeah, please do
1: it helps us uh, more than you can imagine fuckers
0: well, Adam, yeah, it's time we did our picking for next week's episode. Uh, so, for uh, you know, every week, Adam and I each uh, have either two good or two bad movies. We switch up on the quality. In this case, uh, Adam will have two good movies. I have two bad movies, and we've assigned numbers between one and ten for uh, both of our movies. And the other person will pick a number between one and ten. Whatever that gets closest to of the other person's picks will get us the good, and then the bad feature. Uh, for next week's topic. Though, keep in mind, we do have uh, the Godfather rule in place, where um, Adam and I were given a veto last May for our uh, third year anniversary, where um, we had to use them by this coming May, uh, where if we hear a choice from the person, the first choice that we pick number two, one and ten for, and we're like, hmm, I don't like that choice, so actually, I'll take the cannoli. Uh, we both have that option. Adam has taken his already, Uh, But I still have mine, and I have to use it by May. So, uh, you know, it's burning a hole in my back pocket. I got to use it. But I don't know if I'll use it for one of your two good picks, Adam, maybe, for next week's topic, which in honor, we'll say, of Moonfall coming out, um, the big Roland Emmerich disaster movie, uh, we are talking about disaster films.
1: Yeah, honor is a really stretch there. Uh, But yeah, (laughs) disaster films, uh, you know, been around forever, and uh, just something we've never. Approach before, so figured, yeah, this is a perfect opportunity.
0: Yes, uh, so you have the two good for that, Adam, and for your two good choices, I'm gonna pick number six.
1: All right, at number seven, uh, I have a movie which is a disaster film. It also is another pretty predominant genre uh, t- tied to it as well, but uh, I think it's one that. Uh, Absolutely fits the bill, and it's a great movie. I have an
0: original Cloverfield film. Oh, and also a January release. Oh! Yeah, in 2008. Yeah, that was the big January release of that time. Um, I am not taking the cannoli, because I'm a pretty big fan of that movie. From what I remember, I'm very curious to revisit it here. Uh, But what was your other choice at what number?
1: Uh, My other choice at number one is what I consider probably the classic of the sort of disaster movie. Sort of mainstays. It's one that I saw a lot as a kid. I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but I remember being really fucking blown away by it. I have the Towering
0: Inferno. That is one I have not seen. Oh well, there you go. Well, well, Adam, for my two bad choices, please pick a number between one and ten. Oh fuck! Uh,
1: All right, I'll go just flat out number one, baby.
0: All right, and number three. You know, uh, we talk, we're talk. we talking about this because of a Roland Emmerich movie. Um, I have not a Roland Emmerich film, but um, a film from his producing partner, Dean Devlin, I believe his directorial debut, uh, which is a disaster film that came out in the last couple of years. I have the Gerard Butler starring Geostorm. Oh, God.
1: I <laughs> oh, have not watched it on purpose. Uh, Not because I thought it might get chosen, but because I don't give a fuck about it. Uh, so great, great. And you don't have Jesus. your veto
0: anymore, so you can use it. I do not. <laughs> well, on the other side of things, over at number eight, I had one of the two 1997 volcano movies, Volcano.
1: That's a terrible film. I'm very glad.
0: <laughs> I've I, I, actually I have not seen either of those. Is Dante's Peak better?
1: I think Dante speak is better personally. I still don't think it's great, but I think it's better.
0: Okay, so Geostorm and Cloverfield. very interesting double feature. We'll be talking about it next time. but uh, until then everybody, um please th- don't have your sketches run pretty long like this episode or movie forty three. It's a bad
1: yeah. idea. Just, well, I'd argue honestly, just don't watch
0: movie forty three. Yeah, if that wasn't the takeaway from this. Um, you probably didn't <laughs> listen. <laughs>